If you look in the very front of the bulletin, there is a quote by Dennis Johnson. And I want to read that quote to you, and I could easily read this quote, and we could go straight to communion, which some of you would jump up and down about. <laughs> but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do a further explanation. But this quote, I've never seen a better quote describing Christian motivation, so uh, I'm going to read it for you at the top of your bulletin. It says, Although the assurance that biblical justification in parts may seem both to legalists and to antinomianisms, to work at cross-purposes, to Scripture's summons to strenuously pursue holiness. You can tell this is a theologian. What a long sentence. In fact, only this assurance, only this assurance, can produce a holiness that springs from love for God rather than an exploitation of God for our own ends. In other words, only when our obedience flows from a justification, secured assurance of the Father's approval of us for his Son's sake is our obedience an expression of love for God above all rather than an attempt to obligate through our efforts. And so we're talking about gospel motivation today. And at first glance... The reformational understanding of the gospel that sinful people are justified decisively and irreversibly merely through relying upon Jesus' covenant keeping in our place, his active obedience, and bearing the covenant curse in our place, his passive obedience, passive meaning suffering, alone would hamstring the Christian's motivation to pursue holiness and depriving the discipler of much-needed leverage to overcome the disciple's initial inertia. And so what we're beginning to say as we look at the message this morning is, people's assumption is, if I don't have to do anything other than... Uh, receive in an empty hand the salvation that Christ has accomplished for me and if I don't have to work for it I don't have to produce for it I don't have to achieve a certain level I don't even have to prepare myself for it then why would I ever do anything I can sin as I please and still have remission that's the antinomian credo the legalist is misery 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 woe is me I can never do enough but understanding the gospel as it truly is, it's what Christ came to do. He came to rescue us, to save us because we can't save ourselves. But truly grasped and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel literally explodes inside of us. You see, God never justifies any person. God never declares any person to be right with him forever upon the basis of the person of work of Christ that he does not at the same time begin to sanctify us. Sanctification ensues. He changes us inside. Though we are simul ustus et peccator, at the same time, righteous and a sinner, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in our hearts. God gives us a new nature, creates in us a new heart that longs to be obedient to him. And so sanctification always ensues. It always comes out of our justification. 
But truly understood, it takes away motives that are selfish. I think it was St. Augustine who said something quite like this. I may have adjusted a word here or there because you don't live in his century. But here's what he said. A good work done with a wrong motive is a splendid sin. A good work done with a wrong motive is nothing but a splendid sin. It may look good on the outside, but it may be devilish on the inside. And only you know, I can't read motives. I don't have that ability. Generally, I assume the worst unless I'm looking at myself. (laughs) Isn't that terrible? We always guess other people's motives to be wrong. We always think we can read their mind. No, you cannot. Two people can do exactly the same thing in exactly the same time at exactly the same way, and their motives are entirely different. One may be doing it for self-promotion. One may be doing it for the glory of God, and you can't really tell by looking. But the area of motives is huge in the life of a Christian. We're going to talk about those in a moment. After all, if we are assured that we are not only forgiven, but vindicated as upright in God's sight, welcomed as well-pleasing to the Father, once for all irrevocably uh, right with him, why must the Christian keep struggling in the uphill battle against our deeply ingrained sin, our self-centeredness, our self-worship? If throughout this life we are simultaneously righteous in Jesus' imputed righteousness and a sinner in our own subjective imperfection, Doesn't this undermine or deconstruct our growth in righteousness and godliness? By reading Paul as removing the Christian's best effort at loving God and others from the justification equation, have the reformers removed from the pastor's arsenal several potent instruments uh, to use to motivate his people through guilt, fear of divine rejection, Punishment, a sense of achievement, pride, anticipation of a reward, and commendation full of accolades. We all long for that standing ovation (laughs) to stimulate uh, the Christian's commitment to change. But the reality is Scripture points to the gospel itself. That is what works in us, motives that are appropriate in our walk with Jesus Christ. And so we've already looked at, in our scripture reading, a very important motive, and that motive is love for Christ. The central place where God changes us at the level of the motivations of the heart is that a new lifestyle flows from a heart renewed in its love for God. Uh, Significant behavioral change flows from significant motivational change. We therefore should expect to grow in the area of our motives as we progress in the Christian life. The following motives should characterize us as believers. First, love for Christ. Paul tells us that Christ's love for us compels us. It coerces us. It moves us. And the fundamental change which the gospel makes in us is to restore our love and worship 
of God. God rules and has lordship over us rather than idols we have worshipped in the past. Having experienced Christ's love or the love of Christ poured out upon us by the Holy Spirit, our hearts are now transformed so that we now love him in return. We strive to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We desire to please him, but we do not do so in order to be accepted, but because we have been uh, accepted. Obedience is not the condition for salvation, but rather the consequence of salvation. The new motive corresponds to the fundamental change from worshiping idols to now worshiping God. We are whoever we worship. We are like whoever or whatever we worship. It has an amazing power to change us. We are natural-born worshipers. We are the image of God. God has stamped us, as it were, with that image, and we cannot help ourselves. We will worship and serve someone or something. And so God changes our motives through the process of what Christ has accomplished for us. The subjective side of that is when the Holy Spirit pours out love for Christ in us. Do you love Jesus? Do you really love Jesus? And because you love him, you want to obey him. You want to live in a way that pleases him. And so the gospel has the power to turn us to no longer be self-centered. Martin Luther had a famous quote in which he described the the, uh, unbeliever as a person who is incurvatus in se. That's Latin. It means curved in upon ourselves. Why are we self-centered? Why do we think of self first? Why do we even worship ourselves? We do so because we're curved in upon ourselves as a result of the fall, as the result of being born sinful people. We need a savior. We need a liberator. And the only power in the universe that can turn you from being curved in upon yourself to being curved out toward others and toward God is the powerful good news of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. And one of the things that happens is the greater your discovery and understanding and grasp of the gospel gets in your being, the more you love Jesus. The more it's about him. That's what happens. And so love for Christ is one of the primary motivations we find in the gospel. The next one that I wanted to talk about, and I could talk about each one of these in an entire sermon, but you wouldn't want that. And so, and I'm so driven by what you want. Romans 12. (laughs) Really not. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Paul, after providing for us, as we will see when we get into the book of Romans, a profound uh, depiction of the gospel and its power and its righteousness 
and the indwelling Holy Spirit and the Christian's relationship to God and our change in our relationship to the law of God and our great comfort found in uh, all of the benefits uh, of accomplished salvation, all the mercies of God. Paul stops in chapter 12 and says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Gratitude for grace given is a motivation that scriptures offer for obedience is a spirit of gratitude. Thankful for God's act of saving us, we express appreciation through a life which is pleasing to him. We are urged by, uh, uh, in view of God's mercies, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. The Christian life is a joyful response to what God has done for us and what he promises to do for us. And you don't really understand even being what a Christian is unless you are filled with gratitude for what God has done on our behalf, what the triune God has accomplished on our behalf. We worship. We have a whole new understanding of worship. What does worship mean anyway? So glad you asked. Worship means this. It is to see what God is worth. It's actually an old English word, your worth-ship. And so it is seeing who God is and what he's worth. And then in response to seeing who God is, giving him back what he is worth. And so gratitude is a response of worship. We have grateful hearts. We long and love to give him praise. Now there are many obstacles to a grateful heart. There are things in our lives that choke and stifle and quench gratitude. Paul tells us in Romans 1.21 about sinners, whether they be Jew or Gentile, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Ingratitude is the result of a willful refusal to let God be your God and let him assume his rightful place in your life. But gratitude, on the other hand, is something beautiful. The gospel is a renewing dynamic in the Christian's life that produces gratitude as it is grasped and understood. Through the gospel, I am more and more faced with the depth of my sin and the terrible wrath and judgment I deserve. The only thing God owes me as I look at myself in my sin is utter judgment, darkness, wrath, hell. I don't get it because what happened on Good Friday took place. Christ took all of that, received all of that in his body on the cross, and that makes me eternally grateful. Through the gospel that I'm forgiven much in response to that, I love much. The gospel creates a Copernican revolution within my heart. Under the power of sin and gratitude and idolatry reign. But now I'm no longer under the law, but under the power of grace. And I gladly repent of self-worship and my mission of self-glory uh, is gone. And I begin to worship and serve the creator instead of the creature. 
There is a case study in the Bible. You remember that Jesus was invited to dinner at Simon's house. And so he goes. This happens in Luke chapter 7. So Simon goes, uh, or Jesus goes to dinner in uh, Simon's house. And these were courtyards, and they were open to access. And so he goes to Simon's house. Simon does not show Jesus. Jesus meant nothing to him, really. He was curious about him. He wondered about him. He knew he was gaining in popularity. He knew that people were talking about him. He knew that there was a lot of buzz about Jesus. But when Jesus appears, Simon does none of the ancient Near Eastern Oriental hospitality that you would normally do for any guest who came to your home. Simon does none of that. Why? Jesus means nothing to him. Nothing. And then we see a woman who was known as a prostitute in the city. Everybody knew who they were. And so she crashed the party, as it were. And what does she do? She takes out a flask of ointment that was worth a year's worth of wages, all that sin money, all that money made through the oldest profession known to man, prostitution. She takes out the ointment, and anoints Jesus' head, weeps, and with her hair washes his feet. She lowers her hair in the presence of Jesus, which is a big no-no, etiquette-wise. It is suggestive of something nasty. And she weeps and washes his feet. She can't get over the glory and greatness of Jesus because she knew he was for sinners and she knew what she was simon had no clue simon had no need of jesus what do i need him for i would only need him if i was a prostitute like this woman i'm doing fine and so jesus takes a parable and he talks about a money lender and one who owed his master like 25 dollars and one that owed him 25 million And he said, the master forgave both debts. Who do you think would be more grateful? And Simon says, the one who owed 25 million. Jesus then goes, Simon, I've been in your house. You did nothing for me. And this woman can't stop worshiping me. She worships me because she knows her sin and she knows she's forgiven. How about you? I want to tell you, If you ever see your sin, you will never see how glorious Christ is. Christ will mean nothing to you. Christ will mean very little to you. But the more you see your sin, the bigger you see Jesus. And the bigger you see Jesus, the more clearly you see Jesus, the more you see your sin. See, forgiveness... In this woman's life changed her inside out, and she became what? A worshiper of Christ. Are you? Are you drawn to him in that way? Are you compelled? Well, there's more motives. You know, I usually have a three-point sermon. I've only covered two, which means we've got four more to go, right? What's the next one? Desiring to grow into what God has already made us. Um, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. You were once darkness, but now you are in the light. Live as children of light. 
imperatives, that is, commands Christ gives us, always arise out of the foundation we already have in him, which is indicative. Indicative, these are theological terms used to distinguish how, like the book of Ephesians, for the most part, the first three chapters are all about theological doctrine regarding our salvation in Christ, and the last three chapters are more focused on, you can't say this completely either way, but they're more focused on what we do because of what Christ has done for us. But we need to become who we are in Christ. And that should be a primal motivation in our hearts. We are new people. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we don't live the way we used to anymore. Our priorities change. Our desires change. And so because of that, we are to become who we are. Every imperative in the New Testament that commands you to do something is always based on who you are in Christ. Because you are in Christ and you are his son and you are forgiven and you are righteous in him, then you live this way. You become holy as I am holy, Peter says to us in chapter 1. You don't reverse that. You don't obey the commands of Christ in hopes of becoming a son of God adopted into the family because you are adopted into the family. Live like it. Live like a child of God. And so that's a huge motivation. Understanding just the simple truth. As we get into Romans, we'll see this more and more. So we desire to grow into conformity to the image of Christ. We are to live in keeping with what God has done. We are, to to, we are not to continue to live in sin. We are to live as those who have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. That is who we are, and that's what we're called to do. Motivation number, which one is this? Four? Just seeing if you're listening. Future hope. <laughs> Future hope. We are free to live godly lives in spite of the apparent cost to us when we contemplate the eternal glory that is promised. Do you think much about heaven? Do you think much about hope? Now, I know when I was young, like some of you, I wasn't thinking about dying. I was indestructible. Now that I'm just a little bit older, I'm seeing things fall apart. I got good news for you. The older you get, stuff just stops working. Your body, your teeth, your hearing. My wife had to say something to me like five times the other day, and I'm thinking, maybe it's listening to that music at the gym and through headphones is getting to me. But then you start looking around, and all your peers are no longer here. They're beginning to die. And they're beginning to go on, and you begin to think more about the future. And the future hope that animates us as believers is the gospel tells us that the glory we will receive will far outweigh any suffering at the present time. There's no comparison. Every one of us suffer. Every one of us endure hardship one way or another. There's no person who's a believer in Christ 
Who doesn't suffer? suffer? Jesus said, through much tribulation, you will enter the kingdom of God. It is a lifestyle of suffering at the present time. Creation itself is groaning. We ourselves groan underneath this bondage to decay. But one of the great motivational truths of Christianity is, I hate to say it this way, but it's the only way I know how to say it, the only hell you are ever know, and it's not really hell, will be in this life. The only glory that unbelievers will know is in this life. But forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, you will be living in the presence of God with joy, celebration, wonder, growth. I mean, it will be delightful. I've never heard, I mean, surely, well, I won't go there, but just to say, hope is a powerful force in our lives as we anticipate the ultimate consummation of all things and the return of Christ. We know we hold things in this life with a loose grip. My life doesn't consist of things I possess or things I have in this world. You think of life, and the psalmist especially says life is like a vapor. It appears for a moment. It's gone. It's a hand breath. It's the length. It's a whisper. It's so brief. It's so little. It's so minute compared with eternity. But with eternity, I will live forever with Jesus. So the sufferings of this present time are not even worth to be compared. I has not seen nor ear heard the things that God has prepared for those he loves and those who love him. Paul was caught up into the third heaven. And he said he saw things that were not lawful for him to utter. Every time I read that, I go, well, why didn't he say something about it? But he was forbidden, I suppose. Hope. Now, this one is going to make you think a little bit. The promise of coming judgment. And that one is found in 2 Corinthians, correct? 2 Corinthians, uh, we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due for him, for uh, due for uh, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And so we will face judgment. Every person will face judgment. There's no doubt about that. But this judgment that we face is uh, very interesting. There it is. The judgment that we face is... Um, somebody come up here and stole it from my... All right, who took it? I sound like a little boy, don't I, with a brother. What'd you do with it? Talk about the concept of human faithfulness here just for a moment. I, I kind of want to hit this and, and go on. The treatment of reward in the Bible is very interesting. Uh, and the New Testament helps us understand where our faithfulness belongs. Our faithfulness is not the condition 
by which we remain in the covenant, nevertheless, there is covenantal reward for those who are faithful. A reward that is related in some manner to our faithfulness. The gradation of a reward should uh, neither be overstressed nor understressed. There is a differentiation on the basis of our faithfulness. Yet at the same time, all renewed people of God receive the fundamental blessing of being in God's presence for eternity. Both of these aspects are in the New Testament. In the vision of uh, the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, it is the equal reward of all saints that is prominent. All believers are made perfect and granted equal entrance into the very presence of God himself. In the parable of the workers in the vineyard, the same reward is given to those who were hired at the 11th hour as those who have worked hardest and longest. And so the foundational equality of the reward flows from our being united to Christ, and it is his righteousness that is the basis for our full inheritance. Yet, on the other hand, some texts affirm gradation in reward. Paul draws a contrast between two builders, each of whom is building upon God's church on the only possible foundation, Jesus Christ. One builder builds with gold, precious stones, while the other builds with wood, hay, and straw. The works of each will be exposed on the day of judgment, their quality tested with fire. If what is built survives, he will receive reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. Both are equally saved, yet they receive different rewards. So we see that there's both gradation and there's both the same or uh, equal uh, reward uh, as we consider the judgment of Christ. Yet, as with so many other biblical metaphors, these images present complementary truths that together express a richer picture than any single image could. The function, function of the scripture teaching on rewards is twofold. There's the equality of the inheritance stresses all who enter heaven have a glorious reward, while the principle of gradation of reward stresses the accountability of the saints and the certainty of their future vindication by him. On the one hand, God expects fruitfulness from his servants and will hold everyone accountable for the use of the resources and opportunities that he has entrusted to their care, while on the other hand, no one who has trusted Christ will be disappointed by the inheritance he receives." I know that doesn't resolve it for it. You're just going to have to live with it. Both are there in the Bible. Now, if you want to know my opinion, what is the, uh, the, the greater reward in the gradation series is a greater capacity for Jesus. That's what I think it is. Because what is our inheritance? What is our reward? It's Christ. And finally, uh, the last one, is is that the last one? Are you listening so fast I couldn't keep up? Yeah. So that's what Christian motivation is all about. It's about recognizing that the gospel produces fruit. Paul, in writing to the church at Thessalonica in chapter 1, talks about 
that they had welcomed and received the gospel because God had set them apart for that purpose. And the gospel was evidenced in the church by the presence of faith, hope, and love, the triune graces. So when the gospel comes into our life, it energizes us. It changes us. It's not just the entry way into the Christian life. When I grew up in the Baptist church, um, Sunday morning, you never heard the gospel preached because it was assumed that everybody was in there was a believer. Why well, preach the gospel to believers? There's probably nobody that needs it more than a believer. Unbelievers need it, but believers need it. Why? Because it is the power of God. So that is how our motives are changed from self-serving and mercenary. And what am I getting out of this? You ever had that ungrateful experience, a moment of saying to God, either out loud or only musing to yourself because you're afraid, I'm getting a raw deal here. I don't like what's happening in my life. I deserve better than this. I'm entitled to have a better life going on. And my word to you is, you so need the gospel. You so need to see what you really, really, really deserve. And you so need to see what Jesus has done about it and what you're going to receive forever because of what he did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided us powerful, powerful help in motivating us to serve you with all our hearts, souls, and minds and strengths to love you as we are loved by you and to love one another. Now, Father, we pray as we continue to worship you, we would give as people who are grateful, give as people who truly grasp and are grasped by the gospel. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.